John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now at the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, or literally supper being, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered, and he said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a bath. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Are any of you getting nervous? Don't worry, there are no buckets at the moment. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Will you pray with me, please? We seek you, Lord. We seek you to know you, to understand you, to understand your love for us, spoke to each of us, calling us by name. But we seek you also to understand your call in our lives, the things in which you challenge us to do. And we recognize, God, even today here, that this is so contrary to how we think and feel. I don't think there's anyone in this room that naturally looks at this and thinks, oh, awesome, I was hoping for this. And that alone tells us we need a supernatural act in this room. We need so much more than just words. But your word, active and living, living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of our heart. God, we need you to cut and to perform the surgery you intend. We need you to speak to us. You, words of life into our life, the way that we would get it and understand. And you know every person here, and you know how to overcome all of those things. So today we pray that right now. Speak intimately, powerfully to each of us, even now. So immerse me in your spirit that you would be seen and come upon me that you would use me to do what only you can do. Captivate us in your word. May we have fun in your word, but may we get it today. And if there be any who have yet to know you, know that choice, that dignity of choice you have given, let today be the day of their salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. Always. Because there will always be somebody with a fancy talk and a fancy dress 
doing their fancy show, and they will, with great vehemence and tremendous passion, speak. But that doesn't mean it's true. Jesus now has been approaching what we know of as Pesach or Passover. It is a feast that the Jewish people had been required to celebrate, although doesn't it even just sound weird to say that? Required to celebrate. Since beyond the 1400 BC, it is the first of three required feasts of the year and it is the first one listed and first celebrated because it was the one celebrated, if you will, whilst still in Egypt. Now, you know that once you leave something for a period of time, it becomes protocol, a practice, and tradition. But there are specific things in which God had ordained, specific things that he required for it, and today those things wind up in a book. I mean, to be honest, you can also get a whole lot of other things because the more years you add to it, the more things that you're going to add as tradition. But there are specific things that are required within a Passover, a Haggadah, the procedure, if you will, for such a thing. And it comes in a book. And there are a lot of people who simply read the book and do it. But there are certain things that Jesus would have done 2,000 years ago, and we might even say 3,000 plus years ago, the Israelites would have done as well. Let me explain a couple of them, because what you realize is the more you get this Haggadah, this process, the more you realize the entire Gospel of John is one big Haggadah. Because the whole idea of it is, is that the firstborn son was to die, and the Lamb of God was to die so that those who were slaves could go free. God had been bringing those to a point when Jesus steps foot in his adult ministry, and John starts by saying, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, understand that Hebrew word for lamb is sech, and the last time we saw that word was in Genesis 22, when we read that God would provide himself that sacrifice, that sech. And the next time we see it is when God tells us to take one, slaughter it, that we would be set free. Strange as it is, it all comes to point with this. During that particular Passover, and we may do one again this year, that seems like a lot of fun. We kind of dress in costumes, sing and dance, and it's a good time. It's something you don't want to miss if we do. It starts with the lighting of candles. And after the lighting of candles, there's a thing called erchatz. Now, I mean, there are other things up to that point. For instance, for what it's worth, there's a thing called chametz, which means yeast, leaven, which you must drive out of your house because your house doesn't even qualify to celebrate Pesach until you've driven out the yeast. And then you prepare the wine, you prepare the bread, you prepare the lamb. But when the ceremony is to begin, you start with the lighting of the candles. And then, which by the way is done by a woman, because it's the, through, the, through a woman, Messiah would come. And then, there is the erchatz. Erchatz means the washing, the cleaning of your hands. And the reason is, is because you're going to be dipping, and you're going to be dipping more than once. You're going to be dipping twice. You're going to be double dipping. Now, today, there might be as many as three, but there were two very specific ones in its day. Arguably three. You took something like parsley, karpas, and you dipped it in salt water. And the idea was simple, that that slavery brought together great tears and sweat, but there was fruit in those. There was a fruit of God's promise he had promised over 400 years before that point. But the people knew that slavery sucked. It was terrible. But we go beyond that to a thing called murr. Murr is this... Bread, it's the first time bread is dipped, and it is dipped in something very bitter. Traditionally, something like horseradish is the idea. And you don't take a little bit of it. You don't do that little sissy dip stuff. You put a glob of it on there, and you put it in your mouth, and you bite hard. Now, any of you ever actually have the horseradish experience? We might even go as far as, or the wasabi experience, you know, where maybe... You didn't realize how pungent or how effective it would be. And then all of a sudden, your entire face has been 
dominated for the moment. You don't know if you can breathe. Your face turns red. You start to cry and you go, <gasps> but you try to do that all on the inside because people are around you and you don't want to look like you're a, a wimp for Right? And they're like, have some more. And you're like, are you kidding me? Well, understand, this was all of these things, because God is so good at object lessons. Don't miss this. It was called the Lemechani, the bread of affliction. And the idea was, this was just to remind us how horrible slavery was, that we would never want to go back. You ever meet someone, and they were in the worst relationship? I mean, the person they went out with was just cruel and nasty and abusive and so forth. And so they finally, after years of trying to finally get out, they finally get out. And every day they're telling you how horrible it is, how horrible and how in danger they are and how they may not live through the night and they genuinely believe it and it might be true. And then somewhere in it they finally get out of this relationship and they finally break free. And, and then they, once they finally break free, they're like... I miss him. I remember those three moments. Those three moments when he showed up with flowers after he beat me or after he was kind, after he, you know, and we get these weird moments and you're like, what's wrong with you? Don't you remember all those moments you cried and you called the police and how horrible life was? Don't you remember those moments? Well, that's the way God wants us to look at our old life. Did you remember you could go, oh, I miss the spiciness of that life, the garlic. I miss the meat. Yeah, it was exciting, not knowing whether you had a disease, got pregnant, or got someone pregnant, not really being aware of whether you have a warrant out for your arrest, not knowing if someone wants to kill you legitimately and that you've earned it. I mean, there were a lot of exciting things that you look back at. And so weird that we could romanticize those things. But not in God's intention. He wants you to look back and see it as bitter, as biting into a big glob of horseradish where you cry. I don't care how tough you are. You bite into enough of it, tears are going to stream down your face if you have tear glands. Your face will turn red and it'll be bitter and there'll be a part of your body that's going, why are you putting this in me? And I like horseradish. And God says, I want you to realize, running back to that slavery is only jumping headfirst into the bitterness of a life you want a deliverance from. You cried out to me for this. John is preparing us. What we have now in these 17 verses is the the washing, but there's also another thing we'll see next week, and that is the lemechanin. Now, Consider this, this particular section, these 17 verses are basically in four movements. Verses 1 through 3, the pretense. Verse 4, the, if you will, the preparation. Verses 5 through 11 are the practice, and then the principle in verses 11, or 12 through 17. I'll say that one more time. The first three verses are pretense. What Jesus understood, what he knew. Verse 4 was our preparation. Verses 5 through 11 were practice what he actually did, and then finally in 12 through 17, the principle behind it. Now please understand, some of you are aware of this, but that during a season where people were indentured servants, called slaves in the day, not like today where we understand slavery to be kidnapping somebody from their family. By the way, God never endorsed that. People go, God's into slavery. God actually made kidnapping a capital offense. So the idea of going to someone else's land and stealing somebody from there and then forcing them to serve you, that actually would be, the person who did that would actually be killed. That's what God feels about it. So don't tell me that God is actually endorsing slavery as we know it. It was simple. You owed someone money and you worked for them. And believe it or not, they told you where to go, when to be there, and what to do. For those of you who actually work for a boss, they probably do the same thing. Tell you when to get there, how long you're going to be there, and what you're supposed to do while you're there. That's what a boss does. Well, consider this. That in that, the lowest of those servants was the one who washed your feet. Because unless you live in a place like Greenwich, like we do, chances are you're probably not stepping in. Well, actually, Camden's dangerous, too, on a Sunday morning because there's a lot of, well, it all depends on how cold it is. But a lot of people got sick last night because they had a little bit or a lot too much. 
But imagine, if you will, spending a lot of time walking and you do all your traveling by walking, you step in an awful lot of things. So the role of the lowest servant would be the person who would be washing that off your feet. How strange that it would be Jesus who would be doing it here. Now, take a look at it with me. Because the real question is, why don't we wash feet today? And might I just say it this way? It isn't even necessarily the practice of washing feet because, to be honest, it isn't necessarily as practical because, although there is something still extremely humbling about doing so, I would never want to stop someone from doing something like that unless it was for some weird reason. But I would say this, that there is still the idea of taking the role of the lowest servant that we really don't embrace at all. So look at it, verse verse 1. Now, before the feast, that's important to recognize. Remember, it was required before the feast actually began for there to be a chutz, the washing, because you're going to be dipping. Jesus will be doing that in our next section. And when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, did something as a result of it. In our first three verses, don't miss this, there are two people that are actually highlighted, and one of them is Jesus. Can anyone tell me who the other one is? Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, we have this interesting side note about him, that he's Simon's son. Now, that's a really weird thing, because what Simon is going to be mentioned in the rest of the text? Simon Peter. Now, we don't assume that Simon Peter is actually the father of Judas Iscariot. But it's important to note that in one place, God makes special note of Judas Iscariot being Simon's son in a place where he actually mentions a guy named Simon. And I tend to think of for no other reason, it's so that we could realize that there's something about Judas that actually we could learn even in Simon Peter. Now, notice the fact that what Jesus operated from was a knowledge Before the feast, look at verse 1, Jesus knew. Now, for what it's worth, and I will try not to get too technical, there are two basic words for know. There's a word that's idol, not like I don't know, but idol, and it means to perceive. Let me give you an example. A simple case of idol would be, like we look at that board over there, and I could say that that board is blue. Now, the reason I could say that is because somewhere down the line, someone told me that that color was blue. It's fairly likely that you've been taught the same thing. We don't need any grave experience to be able to say, I feel blue. I hear in Miles Davis the moment I look. But it's just basically, it's something we can perceive. It's just a simple knowledge. Math is a simple knowledge. Though we can experience it to some degree, we've been taught it by principle. Now, understand that's one way to know. There's another way to know, and that word is gnosko. Like we get the word agnostic from it, which literally means I don't know. Gnosko or gnosos literally means to know with an experience. But it isn't an experience that necessarily happens to me. It's an experience I share. For instance, Bruno and I have quite a bit of history together since we've been here. We've actually even gone to his house with the craziest robo car wash shower I've ever seen in my life. It's like 16 buttons and water comes from places. I don't even know. Anyways, but the point is, is that we've had experiences together. We know what it's like to wake up in a very, very cold house at a time that was in Portugal where we thought it might be a little bit warmer. We know what it's like to serve food to a guy that said he eats everything and discover together, corporately, that he eats everything that is chicken, basically. Now, the reason I say that is neither of us experienced that to us, but we experienced it together. So we have this beautiful history together of these moments we watch God do fantastic things and moments that we can look back and laugh at. That's the idea of Gnosko. Now, the reason I say that is when we talk about knowing Jesus, it's by experience, but not experiences happening to us because we really can't be objective to that. But experiences we have together, I've watched him be faithful. I've watched him fix problems in front of me. I've watched how he's reacted in the face of danger and in the way that he has blessed me and blown my mind in goodness. But when it comes to truth, it's always the first one. You really don't need experience to validate truth. There are days where gravity is felt. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you have had the flu recently. I have too. 
We called it the zombie flu because I've never seen something that felt like you were basically dead like that before. My brain could not function, which, to be honest, was now that I see it in retrospect, it's quite merciful. Because if my body was that wasted and my brain was still that active, I would have gone mental. But now I just lay there. And I felt gravity. On a day like that, I felt like I was underwater. Now, most days, I spring up like Tigger out of bed. Boing, hey, what's up, hey? Drive people crazy with that. But gravity is the same on both days. Just some days I feel it, some days I don't. But it doesn't cease to make gravity, gravity. And whether you feel it or not, it's still truth. You drop a bowling ball, it's going to actually go down. Now, having said that, Jesus knows. And he knows this truth without having to have any experience, though he's had experience. But he's known perfect active parcel, which means he chooses to know once and for all. That his hour had come, that he should depart from the world, and that he was going to the Father. I'd like you to consider these truths for a moment for yourself. Do you know these things? Do you know that sooner or later, you're going to cash in your breath? You get a certain amount of them, and you will not get one more. It tells us, by the way, that God has actually numbered our days, counted our breaths for what it's worth. Moses, of all people. Do you know that Moses wrote a psalm? Actually, a couple. Uh, psalm 90, verse 12, Moses says, Teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. David would say in Psalm 39, verse 4, O oh Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I would know how frail I am. They were like, Could you remind me that where I'm at at the moment is temporary? And if I'm reminded that where I'm at is temporary, then I better start thinking a little bit more about investing in my permanent address. There's the danger. For some people, this is all we've got. And it tells us for what it's worth, it is appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. You get one shot and this is it. You don't get any replays. There's no extra lives. This is not a video game. And Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, we don't normally get that. It isn't like... God's like, God's told me I have 1,300 more breaths and that's it. I mean, in the end of it all, but we do know that sooner or later, our hour will come. And he knew that when he was to depart from this world, he was going to stand before the Father. That's where he operates from in verse 1. Look at verse 3. Jesus knowing. Same word, I don't. Perfect active participle. Perfect means once and for all, although it's common in practice. Continual participle that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going to God. Listen to the knowledge that Jesus is operating from, to start with. Because if we don't get that, then we'd say, well, how in the world are we going to be footwashers the way that Christ calls us to be here? He recognizes first where he came from. He recognizes where he's going. And he recognizes that he's been given everything he needs in between. He was sent from the Father. And if he was sent from the Father, he was sent with a mission. And the Lord will never send you with a mission and not give you the wherewithal to accomplish it. Tell me if this makes any sense. God has this equilibrium between responsibility and authority. If you get one without the other, you're in danger. If you get responsibility without authority, you'll exhaust yourself to death. You'll dry up. And there are people who do that. They take the responsibility, but they have no authority to accomplish it. Then there are others who have authority with no responsibility, and that just makes you a tyrant. Then you just become a bossy jerk. God doesn't want that. But when he gives you a mission, he'll give you the authority and the wherewithal to accomplish it. So this is what Jesus is operating from. He's operating from the fact that he, that he knows that the life on earth is a temporary thing. By the way, Throughout Scripture, we see testimony of this. We see in the book of Hebrews, when we talk about these great people of faith, that they all testified that they were pilgrims on this earth. I love the fact that they look and they said, you know, I really am just kind of passing through here. Jesus would say, for what it's worth, I actually, in chapter 7, verse 33, I'll be with you for a little while, and then I'll go to him who sent me. In John 16, verse 28, he will say, I came forth from the Father, and have come into the world again, I leave this world and I go to the Father. 
And we know this, that we are going to stand before God. And when we stand before God, we're going to be held accountable for the life we have. How did you spend it? Did you spend it as if your whole life is a great game of Monopoly and you have gathered everything and you've won the Monopoly, but once the game's over, you have nothing? What Jesus knew is that everything here is temporary, but everything with the Father is permanent. And He knows that He has a specific mission. He has the wherewithal to accomplish that mission. And as a result of that, He operates from this mindset of eternity. He operates that there is a heaven and there is a Father He's going to stand before. Not just a distant God and a judge, but His Father. The same Father who adopts. The same guy that I call Father now because that same God has adopted me through the gift of Jesus Christ. And you realize on this side of it, Jesus' mind was full of the clarity that He has a mission and He needs to accomplish it. He would say in the last, actually two chapters ago, he would say that, well, don't think that I'm going to judge you. I didn't come to the world to judge or condemn the world, but that the world through me would be saved. Jesus said, I came to save. He knows his mission, and he came to save you. Do you know the one person who doesn't get saved? The person who is unwilling to recognize the need to be saved. As a lifeguard for uh, several times in my life, well, a couple times in my life, One thing's clear is the most dangerous people to jump in and rescue are the people who actually don't think they're drowning. Because they're the ones who are actually just going to try to use you as a flotation device, which is the last thing you want to be at a moment like that. I'm like, what I need you to do is to surrender to my rescue or we're both going to go down. And that's a bad idea for both of us. And I can see the Lord calling to us and saying, look at with all of your pride, you're drowning and you know it. Do you really want that? So hear me on this. While Jesus' mind is full of this clarity, well, on the other hand, Judas' heart is full of something else. Listen, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Psalm 84, 5. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Those that died in faith embraced God's promises, having seen them from afar off, embraced those things and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's where we are, whether we like it or not. But look at verse 2 in comparison. And then I ask, which one am I more like? Which one are you more like? Supper being ended, or literally supper being, verse 2 says the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now hear me on this. The word for put, do you see the word put there in verse 2? The word put's a simple word. The word in the Greek is the word balo. Try that. Can you say balo? Balo, like a ball, literally means to throw. That's a really simple one. So don't miss this. The idea of it was simple that somewhere in all of this, Satan was throwing something, and somewhere in it, Judas Iscariot's heart was open for it to be thrown in. Now, let me put it in another way. I don't know if you're aware of this. My first job, I was 15 years old, was a carny. Do you know what that is? It's one of those sketch people who work at a carnival. Work, you know, that kind of, we call them fairs here, where they kind of travel around. And uh, I worked in what they called the joints. In other words, those things where you basically try really hard to, uh, to win a prize you would never, ever won if it wasn't for your pride. But now if you can just throw that thing, and you, now you get like a multi-patchwork, weird, plush snake or something, right? You'd never won except for the fact that you're like, I won this. And now all of a sudden it's cool. Well... I remember in all of that, that the way that they would work these things is you're probably aware of the fact it's like any of those things. The house always wins. They set those things up so you can't possibly win. And I remember once the fair was here, actually when we were living near Hampstead Heath, uh, and we went to see the fair there, and I remember distinctly there was one where the whole idea of it was knocking over coconut with a coconut. doesn't sound very difficult, does it? There were coconuts and they were on poles, and you were given a coconut, and all you had to do was throw it, knock over the coconut and you get some 
horribly ugly thing, scary plush toy that now for a, for a moment is cool because it's a prize. Well, hear me on this. Uh, inevitably, because I was kind of, that was my first job, I always look at what's the angle? What's the hard thing? What's the way that they've made this impossible? Well, I noticed there was a sign in the corner, and the sign in the corner said, no cross throwing. And that was where I was like, hmm. So if you imagine, if you will, there's four posts, and with each one of the posts, there's a coconut sitting on each of them. So I move over to the one on this side, and as I do, I look at the one over on this side, and I noticed something about the posts. The post was not just this thing with this flat edge to it. It had a little lip on the back of the, of the, uh, of the post. And therefore, if you threw something straight at the coconut, it would hit that lip, and it would never fall off. Funny as that is, if you will. In other words, it was a no-win. It was a carnival. It was a carnival loss, if that makes sense. And therefore, if you threw it from the side, you wouldn't be able to have that thing to stop it. Now, the reason I say that is that was set up in a way you're just not gonna win. You get that? Now, there are other things where you realize that some of you are really gifted at certain sports or certain games. Our daughter, for whatever reason, is really gifted at, for instance, those like Wii games and those kind of things. It's amazing. She doesn't even know what she's doing. And the next thing you know, she's just slaughtering us. And the reason I say that is, is that Judas was an easy win. But Jesus was an impossibility. Both of them would be tempted by the enemy. But the difference was, one was available and one wasn't. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite statements that Jesus has made about all of this by the way, is when he actually says this, and hear me on this, it's so beautiful, because he actually says that he has overcome, he's come to save the world, and then it says this, he says that the enemy has nothing in me. I love that statement. Now understand, that doesn't mean that the devil didn't try throwing. The difference was, it was just closed. So if you will, imagine that you're kind of sitting at your house, and there's a guy, and he's trying to throw bombs in a house. And your door is wide open and your windows are wide open, it's a pretty good possibility they're going to make their way in. Well, that was the problem with Judas Iscariot, is that he was just somebody with an open heart to the enemy. Is where Jesus, on the other hand, that was just not where it was going to go with him. So Jesus knew this. He had come from the Father. He would know that he had been sent. He had a specific mission. And as that he had a specific mission. He was going to accomplish it, and he was given everything he needed to accomplish it. And because of that, he was going to complete it. Which, by the way, aren't you thankful? Because his mission was to save you. His mission was to pay for your guilt and mine too. To wash us clean and redeem us and set us free. The whole point of the Passover. Well, with that in mind, Judas, on the other hand, well, Judas had opened his heart and he allowed the enemy to do his work, to throw into that now. And what was it that the, what Judas was, well, it was his, what was it that the devil threw into Judas's heart? Betray him. Betrayal. Oh, that's where that came from. So now here is Jesus with a working knowledge operating from this eternal perspective. And Judas consumed in his heart by the temporary world around him to betray Jesus. Now let me ask you, which one's more you? I ask myself, which one's more me? A mind full of the eternal perspective or a heart that is wide open to the traps of this world? Because that's the brash contrast between the two when we read in verse 4. This is what Jesus did because he understood he was called to. He did three things. He rose up, he removed, and then finally he readied himself. He rose up from his dinner. Then he removed his garments of dignity and entitlement. I remind you, he would have a seamless garment that would be gambled over by the, uh, the Roman guards that were around him at the cross. And then he readied himself by girding himself with a towel to wash their feet. And by the way, I think this is fascinating because in Psalm 93, 1, it tells us that the Lord is not only clothed in majesty, but that the Lord has girded himself with strength. And the same Lord who's girded himself with strength in Psalm 93 is the same one who's girding himself here with a towel. Now, consider this. Jesus started by getting up. Now, understand, way before satellite, Way before cable, 
way before all of that stuff, dinner was your one entertainment of the evening. You sat around a table. You shared stories. If you were a king, you brought in crazy people. That was like the crazy person channel. That's what you did for entertainment. But for the most of us, this was it for us. Entertainment was us fellowshipping with each other over food. This was it. And somewhere in all of this, in the comfort of the moment, Jesus gets up. It tells us in Romans thirteen eleven, know this, that it is now high time for us to wake out of our sleep, for us now to rise, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It tells us in Ephesians five sixteen that we should redeem the time because the days are evil. It is no time to just be laying down and being passive in a world that's more than happy to run us over. And Jesus got up. And let me ask again, why don't we wash feet anymore? I think, first of all, because our minds are actually not in the place where we recognize there's an eternal calling on every one of our lives. And understand, you have a unique calling that I can't fulfill because it's not my shape. It's your shape. It's with your name on it. It's bespoke to you. It is mail God has given you that I can't open. And if you are not going to let that happen, well, I'm not going to fill them the slack. There's the beauty in that. But if we were in this place where we're consumed by the world around us and we just have to have the new iPhone and it has to be whatever, when we can consume with all of that, ultimately, you know what happens? Is we'll never look at each other and want to serve because we'll be too busy getting more for ourselves. But then from there, are we willing to get up from our comfort zone and then remove our clothes of entitlement and dignity? You ever say, well, I can't go to talk to that person or I can't speak to that person. I can't do whatever because somewhere in it, you're above it. And yet I think about the fact that the greatest servant in all of history, the greatest of all of the eternity is the one person, God, the Lord Almighty, from which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, drops down onto his knees to wash the feet, not just of his disciples, but of Judas Iscariot, the guy who already at this moment is consumed with the idea of betraying him, Jesus knowing that, and yet he still gets on his knees and washes his feet. And I think, exactly who wouldn't I do that for if Jesus would do that with Judas? Who do I have that kind of bitterness for? That I would actually go, there's no way I would serve that person. You know. Now, I'm not telling you put yourself in danger. I'm not telling you throw yourself in a place where someone is just going to run rush out on you. But I am saying that we cannot live in this place where we are above it when God of all people clothed himself in flesh and chose not to. And then I can't do that and then call myself a Christian. How can, how is that Christ-like? He removed the clothes of dignity, and I can't help but think of his great predecessor, David, who in 2 Samuel 6.14, actually, when the ark was being brought into the, to Jerusalem, danced before God and in linen ephod. What David did in the simplest sense, and people are like, oh, he's dancing in his underwear. Argue over that all you want. In the simplest sense, David had removed his kingly clothes. David had removed all of his clothes of entitlement and honor before the one who truly deserved all that honor. And he danced in such a way that his wife went off on him. And I think, would I be able to say like David, oh, I'll become even more undignified than this. Oh, in your eyes I will be despised, but among the real servants, I'll be honored. I think, how crazy would that be? To want to be honored among the servants, but not among the queens. And then he readied himself. Am I willing to rise up, not cling to some form of foolish dignity of this world in comparison, and ready myself? Because he did. Well, let's bring this around to close. And now, the, now it picks up, but first understand, Jesus' mind is full of this idea that he has an eternal perspective with a mission. Judas, on the other hand, his heart has been open to betray, and he has given the enemy full audience. And with that then, Jesus gets up and he begins to wash their feet. Verse 5, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and he wiped them with the towel which he was girded. And then he has his encounter with Simon Peter. The other Simon uh, relation in this story. Now, Simon Peter actually lives up to what Jesus just says. Because Simon Peter's like, Lord, and he'll say it twice in verse 6 and in verse 9, Lord, 
Are you washing my feet? And Jesus says, you don't get what I'm doing right now. And that word for understand is that same word I do. You don't even recognize that's blue right now. But you will know that second word by experience, gnosko, after this. You know what Peter does? He goes, oh, no, no, no. You aren't going to wash my feet. Now, how can you say no, Lord? You're the boss, but no. Because Peter does it quite frequently. Peter runs straight to no because he doesn't understand. Notice Jesus says, none of you are going to get this, but nobody asks, can you help me understand then? Jesus is like, yeah, I don't expect you to understand this yet. But no one goes, well, I'd really like to understand this. Instead, Peter just goes, what we would do. Let's face it, when you don't understand something, don't you naturally default to no? That's actually, there's some wisdom in that to some degree. Someone's like, hey, why don't you come over this way? Follow me. I've got something special. And you're like, no, I don't understand. I'm going with no. We've learned that one. But when we don't understand something, the natural place to go is no. And that's what Peter does. Jesus is like, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. And Peter's response is, well, you'll never wash my feet. Notice what Jesus says. If I don't wash you, this isn't going to happen. You'll have no part with me whatsoever which would, by the way, be one of the most frightening things Jesus has ever said to anyone. But I do not understand this. Jesus doesn't need me to understand what he's doing for him to do it. Aren't you thankful? Just because I don't get it doesn't mean Jesus isn't going to do it. And Peter clearly proves that point. So he's, listen, unless Jesus does the washing, I'm not going to be clean. So then notice Peter goes, he's a man of extremes. It's like all or nothing. He's like, no, not at all. And then he's like, well, I'll tell you what then. Then wash all of me. But Jesus, well, he's already known that. I remind you, by the way, back in John chapter, for what it's worth, we've already gone through this where the people have already gone and purified themselves before this, days before this. So we recognize that's already happened. But now this isn't an issue of bathing. This is an issue of archatz, of washing the hands before we dip. So Jesus says, look it. Once you're already clean, you really only need to... Why your hands and feet? Why are those the important parts? Because those are the parts that touch the world. He goes, you know, once you've been cleansed, once God has cleansed you, the only thing now is the upkeep of those parts that are interfacing with the world because you're still going to find yourself getting kind of dirty from those things. I understand why then it tells me in 1 John 1, 9 that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to, to forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness because that's what I do. And he writes that to Christians. He goes, well, am I not already forgiven for those things? He said, yes, but don't you want to wash your feet now that you've been walking in that? But notice in verse, 11, verse 10, Jesus says, look it, once you are completely clean, once you bathe, you only need to wash your feet. But not all of you are clean. Verse 11 says, because he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you're not all clean. Now, Jesus would say all the way back in chapter 6, verse 64, we know that he knew from the beginning who would betray him. And in verse 70, he said, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus has already made that clear. So here, listen, in the end of it all, he washes their feet. But notice once he does, he goes back to that place of dignity and honor. He returns, verse 12. He takes his garments. He sits back down. And he uses it as a teachable moment. He goes, do you know what I've done to you? Now remember, he said, you're not going to get this. So he looks, do you know what I did? And I imagine them going, this is this a trick question? Of course, I have no idea. I know that you washed my feet. That part I get. And this is what he says in verse 13. You call me a teacher and Lord. Do you see that? And you say, well, that I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you should do the same. Now, notice, by the way, there are two titles. And did you notice that Jesus moves them the other way around? He goes, you call me teacher and Lord. Why is that so important, those two terms? Teacher, rabbi, right? The idea of master. But master from someone who's mastered something. Like we use that term, for instance, uh, one of the Asian words, for instance, is sensei, for a person who runs a dojo. Well, hear me on this. If I'm doing something wrong or I'm not doing something right, there's two basic reasons why. One, ignorance. Second, rebellion. I could be doing something wrong because I just don't know better. That's one possibility. Or I could be doing something wrong because I'm a jerk. I could not be doing something right because I just don't know better. Or I could not be doing something right out of rebellion. Does that make sense? 
So understand, if I'm doing something out of ignorance, what do I need? I need a teacher. If I'm doing something out of rebellion, what do I need to recognize? Who the Lord is. So understand, Jesus uses these two terms because he's teaching them, but he's also showing them that he's the one who's in charge. So he says, hey, look it. You call me teacher and Lord, but I am your Lord and teacher. First, I'm your boss, and because of that, I'm going to teach you because you need to know what's right in this. And he goes, look it. If I've done this, if I, the one who is above all things, when they ask, who is the greatest? And he says, the one who is the servant of all is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, who is the servant of all? It's Jesus. They're looking at God and asking who the greatest is. Does that sound weird to you? It sounds weird to me. You're looking at God and you're going, so who's the greatest? And I, there's a part of me that would think Jesus is like, are you seriously asking me this question? Look at I've given you this example because I want you to do the same. Okay, now maybe you're not going to be pulling someone's shoes and socks off and sticking their feet in a bowl. Maybe you are. There are people who do this because it's still an extremely humbling thing. But what is the lowest role? Holding someone's hair back when they're sick. Doing those things, let's face it, the moment you're doing something nobody else would do, someone's going to take notice of it, especially the person you're serving. You know what I see that happen? Mothers. Mothers are the ones who I normally see that with the most. A kid gets sick, and they have, it doesn't matter what it is. And the more I describe it, the more gross it's going to sound, so I'm going to pull out of that. But you get the idea. There's somebody that's going to be like, all right, I'm going to help you with that. And you know, it's like we've had situations with both of our children that have, that have been the most gross experiences of my entire life. And uh, it's amazing how things come out of parts of the body, and it's just, it's just, it's just devastating. And, and all of that, it's like, you know, normally the natural you know, thing is, like, oh, this is disgusting, get me out of here. And they're like, nope, nope, nope. And the next thing you know, like wipes are coming out, and something's coming out, and a bucket's coming out, or something else, and there's a rag, and there's this. And it's like, it's not even like you're thinking about it, because you know why in this simple sense? Because you just love that person. That's why. And because you love them, the gross factor doesn't even equate anymore. Because, to be honest, it's not just that you love them, but to be honest, because you know you have a specific mission to that individual, and part of that mission is to take care of them. And because you have that mission, the moment that happens, there's not a part of you that goes, yippee, they're coming, things are coming out of all of their orifices. You know, but in that, you recognize in that, there's no part of you that goes, this just isn't going to happen. And I realize, I wonder how much of that God's going to roll film later on you ladies who have actually been that dedicated to someone like that. And maybe it wasn't your child. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was your husband or wife. It was someone that you knew was in a rough spot, but you were going to stay up. Because really, in the end of it all, they got that you loved them by the time you were done. And they won't get it by fair weather activity, let's just be honest. And Jesus looks and he's like, what would that look like today to really wash feet? Why don't we do it? I'll be honest, because we're actually not embracing who we are in him, that we've been sent by him, given the wherewithal by him, and that we will stand before God and have to give account for all of the talents and every breath that we've breathed. But when we do understand, it isn't like God's just looking to point a finger because it says that it's the same God who lays bare every, every hidden thing and then it says, and then each one's praise would be from God. What the Father wants to do, and I get this as a dad, is He actually wants to say good stuff about you, but He isn't going to make anything up. He's like, help me out. I taught secondary school for years. And it's like, look it, I want you to, to ace this test. But I'm not going to make you pass it if you don't do well. But I want you to. But that's the part you're going to need to do. And if you realize today for a moment that you embrace that there is a God who loves you infinitely and then wants to use you as a vehicle to love other people, well, all of a sudden you start seeing the person in need and in a new way. You see them as an exciting thing because you're like, you know what? How do I practically show the love of God to this person in a way they get? And sometimes it'll actually be pretty obvious. It's the more obvious needs are the ones we'd be quicker to flee from. But might I say this as well? Maybe you have that in your head. 
but there's really not the prep that's needed. We're too comfortable to get up from our entertainment. I mean, when someone says, I need help, is the first thing we weigh how inconvenient it is? Or how expensive? How impractical? I'm like, no, let's face it. Have you ever had that where it's like you actually don't have any place to be, but you still feel like you're late? And you, though you had no place to be, if somebody actually said, hey, could you uh, help me with this thing? There's still a part of you that thinks, no, I'm busy doing nothing. And there's like, it's like diverting from that mindset for the moment. Because Jesus got up. Are we too proud to think that someone would be below us in something like this? When we're told to love our enemies, can we be there? Let's face it, you clothe yourself in entitlement, and you know what will happen? You'll open your heart for the enemy to throw avalanches in there of betrayal. Or maybe you're in that place where you're like, you know what, actually, okay, I want to do that, but are we readying ourselves? Are we in that place? Or let's see, you ever have God say, I want you to go talk to that person, but you keep walking because you know the second time God says it, they're going to be too far away for you to say anything. And you're like, well, no, I can't. Versus being actually in that place where you're readied. Because Jesus said, look it, you call me Lord. And you call me teacher. Well, you call me teacher and you call me Lord. If you call me teacher, then you should be learning from me. And if you call me Lord, you should do what I say. And I'm telling you, I'm Lord first and then teacher. And therefore, if I've done this, you should do it too. And by the way, what's interesting is that Jesus, for the most part, he washed his disciples' feet. But he actually had this one guy that was a betrayer and he was willing to wash him. But he didn't run out there and start washing every foot that was out there in the world. He started with those people that were part of his genuine care. It's like, that's where it starts. It isn't like what God wants first is for you to run out and then you're like, well, I tried that and I got really abused because what you did is you ran out into the world to people who are totally selfish and that's all they have, but you didn't do anything within a body of Christ where you actually are in a place where you're like, you know, this is where we start this. So he says, look at last couple of verses and let's pray. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant's not going to be greater than his master. And Jesus being the master here, term, if you will. And if you're going to be sent, you're not going to be greater than the one who sent you. In other words, if Jesus did this and he is our master and the one who sends us, then how in the world do we think we should do this any better than he did? We're not like, well, I'm going to take a vote and I decided I'm not going to do it this way because, you know, I'm actually the boss. Well, then don't call him Lord. You realize what he says in verses 16 and 17 in the simplest sense. Listen, most assuredly I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is he who was sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And that word know again is that's blue. If you just wrap your head around this. So listen, this is how he ends it. Now it's your turn. That's what he's saying. But do you realize what's in the balance? He goes, what's in the balance? He goes, if you do these things, What does he say? What's the result? You tell me, according to this last verse. You'll be blessed. Don't miss that. This is what you're robbing yourself of, is the blessing. I mean, you're like, yeah, but it's inconvenient. It doesn't seem much like a blessing to me right now. But if we operate from that perspective that this is our pilgrimage, you'll realize that there is a great blessing involved. And it may not necessarily pan out now, but it will. That's part of it here. And as we go to prayer, let me ask you something. Jesus' mission, because it's where it starts. He came to earth to seek, to serve, and to save. The least, the last, and the lost. Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We are all guilty before God because we have done wrong, thought wrong, and felt wrong. We've intended wrong. No matter how much we hide from ourselves, we would be insane to assume that somehow We're just basically good people. Because what God is actually offering you is total purity. And when Jesus came to earth, he took all of your sin, all of my sin, all of your failures, all of mine, all of your all of your nastiness, all of your filth, all of that stuff, and it needed to be washed off of you. And doing good things is like cologne 
Does that make sense? It's like, think about it. It's like, I did these horrible things, but now I'm going to do good works. That's like really smelling bad and then running around somewhere and covering yourself in eau de perfume. I mean, yeah, it's covering it up, but you didn't get rid of the smell. You just added to it. You know that. Okay, pardon me for this. Hear me so we can pray. You're in a public restroom, but it's a one-person bathroom. And you walk in there, and it's the only one, and it smells really, really bad. And you didn't even do it. And you're like, oh, this is going to be horrible, because when I leave here, they're going to think I did this. Right? Now, I know this sounds horrible, but follow me on this. But what if you were the person who did it? And then you look behind you, and there's a spray. And it says, vanilla jasmine. And you're like, this is perfect, vanilla jasmine. So you've completely, at this point, the wallpaper's starting to drip from the walls. At this point, it's a tiny little place, and you even hate it. And so what you do is you take this thing, and you've decided to give it a good hosing down. And, you're, and you open the door. Do you know what you get when you walk out the door? You know what they smell? Vanilla jasmine poop. I'm just trying to be honest. I'm not trying to be crude because it doesn't remove the smell. It just adds on to it. And we're like, I've, okay, so I've done wrong. I've thought wrong. I've felt wrong. But I'm going to spray some good works on me. So your vanilla jasmine poop, congratulations. But wouldn't you rather it be gone? So when Jesus came to earth, he took all of that filth and shame and he put it upon himself and then he was punished to death though he had no crimes himself to pay for, just yours and mine, because he loves you. He took your sick, my sick, like a caring parent, and he took you and he, and he says, I just want to completely wash you clean. But for that to happen, you've got to say yes. Have you said yes to the gift of Jesus? Have you accepted the gift of Christ? Or haven't you? If you have, then might I say, then let him continue to wash your hands and feet. Let him continue to wash those parts that encounter the world. But please let me remind you, you're here for a purpose now. Live it and watch what he does. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And there was so much, there's so much to share and yet, Lord, the time's always so limited, but we recognize, in the simplest sense, it is one of the weirdest, most sublime, crazy things we could read, because what we read is that our God of the universe, who flung the stars into space and called them all by name, is the same one who clothed himself in flesh and then came here and washed the feet of people that he died to be with and rose again. And I want to thank you for loving me that much for wanting me that much and not asking for me to just try to cover up the horrible things I've done is if somehow if I could just hide them good enough, well enough, they wouldn't be seen. But God, you are a God who knows everything. How do I hide that from you? But instead, you provided this perfect provision where you would wash us clean by the sacrifice you've made, by the shed blood of your Son, Father, at the cross, you have washed us clean, the greatest stain remover in all of eternity. And I pray that if there be anyone who has yet to accept that gift, you tell us that if we're willing to confess with our mouth that you're Lord and believe in our heart you were raised from the dead, we'll be saved. We don't want to pretend like we're not drowning. We are. But Lord, I also pray for every person here who has made that claim to you, but has forgotten that we represent eternity and a world that is steeped and consumed with the temporary. Oh God, today, please, in this room, reattach us to eternity and remind us we are pilgrims here passing through with a mission and may we be faithful to that mission. May we be people who are, Lord, readied. Lord, who would even today remove from ourselves the, the pride that would keep us from serving like we should. And Lord, that we would be in that place where, God, that we would be in that place where we look like you. So as we pray right now, look at, if you're not sure you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, but you know 
that you need to pray this prayer with me right now. It's simple. It's simply this. God in heaven, I'm not perfect. I'm guilty before you. But you paid for all my guilt. When Jesus died on that cross, my bill was paid. And when He rose again, just like Scripture promised, He offers me a new life, free from the bondage of that sin and the filth of that guilt. Just like the Passover where Israel was delivered out of Egypt, you want to deliver me out of that guilt and that bondage. But you give me the choice to make. You give me the dignity of choice. So I say yes. Confessing Jesus as my rescuer, Savior, as my ransom, the payment for my guilt, as my Redeemer, the one who has brought me to a right relationship, and as my Lord. So have my life. I may not understand everything, but I understand this. That if you want me, you can have me. So here I am, I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh Lord, you've heard our prayers today. And I thank you for this beautiful text. And I thank you for Jesus' example. Make us the foot washers. Because clearly, according to this, blessed are the foot washers. So make us so, I pray. I commit, Lord, today to you and this flock. And I thank you for every person who's come. Bless them now for this, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.